As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Paul Sweeney. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Paul, I want you to bring in Dan Ives, but let me give you some pre-COVID comparisons. <laughs> Pre-COVID, $126 billion revenue. 126 has become 243. Wow. Okay. EBITDA, down the income statement, throwing some balance sheet joy that only Dan Ives understands. 56 billion pre COVID. They've done terrible. It's 125 <laughs> billion now. Fifth, they've done on the edge of a double. Yeah. A triple, excuse yeah. me, a triple. And then let me just get down to what I care about. Ives doesn't care about free cash flow. Free <laughs> cash flow, 38 billion. It's basically a double yep. pre-COVID to where we are. This company is failing. Why don't you bring in the good guy from Wedbush? Our good friend Dan Ives, Wedbush Securities Senior Equity Analyst. So, Dan, we got a good look at a couple of the <clears throat> real stalwarts in the tech space last night. Uh, Microsoft uh, and Alphabet. I know you don't cover Alphabet, but I, I know you've got some thoughts there. But let's just start with Microsoft there. Our good friends in Seattle, it seemed like a solid quarter across the board here. Uh, I mean, I know the stocks reflected that over the last year. What did you take away from our good friends at Microsoft? I mean, look, I think they should print this press release off and conference call and put it in the loop. I mean, if you look, the the cloud numbers here are off the charts. Copilot, remember, this is all about AI. Copilot, you have over a million customers right now from a subscriber perspective. Enterprise are lining up monetization's here. This is just the start of the revolution. Right. I think this is as bullish as we could have expected. Dan Ives, go out three years. I was talking with our great Joel Levington this morning about, you know, the timeline out. I want you to be an adult. I don't care about the next trading day. I don't even care how we get Microsoft to Valentine's Day. <laughs> Give me 2026. Where is this juggernaut then? I think it's somewhere between four to five trillion. I mean, but Tom, we'll just put some numbers around it. Please. There's an incremental hundred to 125 billion of cloud revenue, not reflected in street numbers. If you put that into EPS, I mean, you're really essentially looking at what could be an incremental three right. to four dollars of EPS that's now reflected in the stock. <clears throat> 
Yeah, well, I was on the conference call, and I said to Sacha, I said, don't get rid of Diablo 4. But you know, <laughs> tell me about Activision, because I looked at the free cash flow explosion, and everybody's been out of shape about the revenue of Activision. I'm looking at the profit from day one. It's larger than what we would call Windows business. What does profit at Activision do out two years, three years? Well, I, I think it's really about the cross-sell opportunity. I mean, that that's something that probably could increase another 20 25% for me. From, from a profitability perspective, that's just going to give them more and more of a talent because in the, in the scheme of things, it's a rounding error, you know, relative to the overall business. But right. what they're doing now, they're just broadening out on the consumer and on the enterprise gaining more and more strength. And you look at the numbers, the numbers are just, they're jaw-dropping. Jaw -dropping. They're, they're truly, folks, from the scope and scale of this, yep. I, I, to me, it's the Rockefeller buildup back in the 1890s <laughs> to 1920. Paul, LinkedIn up 9%. Oh, I, know. I know, it's just amazing. Hey, Dan, I, I know you don't, you don't cover Alphabet per se, but what do you think, you know, this just AI and chat GPT for our friends in Seattle, what does that mean for kind of the global search business? I think, look, if you look at Alphabet, the, the advertising, even though, you know, some could sort of split hairs here, I, I think actually really strong when we saw from YouTube and, and a lot of their assets. I think the big thing on Alphabet is just what's happened in Google Cloud. You look at that, some of the parts, I mean, they're just starting to tap into that massive opportunity in the cloud. And we've talked about, well, my colleague Scott Devitt, that could add 30 to $40 per share to the, to the Google right. store. And I just real, real, real simple here. Apple tomorrow, Oof. Amazon tomorrow. What do you expect? Look, New York City cab drivers bearish on Apple, you know, in, in terms of units and everything. And I think China's actually been relatively stable. I think that's going to be a breath of fresh air from Cook and Cupertino on units, on services, and on Amazon. And the big story is going to be. The, the I'll call it a mini turnaround that they're seeing on e-commerce as well as cloud. We're going to look at the end of this week and say big tech's delivering. These knee-jerk reactions I view as kind of uh, table scraps. All right, Dan. So, I mean, I think, you know, the big thing for Apple is China. So just give us a sense how you think that's going to be play out or how you think Tim Cook's going to frame that out uh, tomorrow night. I think he's going to talk about demand's been relatively stable. There are some pockets of weakness, Huawei competition, but overall the upgrade opportunities in the ASPs look strong in the region. I mean, it's our view that units show growth this year. The street's now baking in, I'd say, 5 to 10% decline. So if you start to hear that from Cook, along with services, double-digit growth, you look what's happening to free cash, what Keen always talks about. I mean, you start to now get a stock that should be <clears> – <throat> Closer to 250 rather than, you know, right. they want to eat. I got 30 seconds, Dan Ice. Use of cash. When do they get off their butt? <laughs> Sweeney wants them to raise a dividend. He sent a note out there this morning to Amy Hood. They got to raise a dividend, share buyback, bond issuance. When does Microsoft grow up and act like a blue chip? Yeah, and they talked about that Sweeney activist situation. <laughs> and, and they, look, and I think that's something to, over the next six, 12 months, there's going to be some massive deployment of capital allocate, just given they're generating more cash in some countries right. here. You know, this just came in. Rich from uh, the Netherlands just emailed it, early, you know, middle of the day. 
That's a hell of a man cave on YouTube, folks. You got the Ives Sports Man Cave. What do you got in the paraphernalia behind you there? Well, we got our, of course, Pete Penn State. We are Giants, Islanders. Got my Bon Jovi stuff. You got your there. Bon Jovi. Is it early Bon Jovi back with the skull T-shirts? Or is it it's later early. Bon Jovi? We're, we're, Suburban we're music. We're talking 85 core. Okay, nice. when Michael Brower mixed it. That's good. Dan Ives here on John Bon Jovi. Thank you so much. Good morning, Michael Brower, who mixed all those great hits. <laughs>now on the Fed, she won't fly Boeing anymore. Julia Coronado joins <laughs> us. Macro pol- I'm kidding. Macro policy perspectives here on Fed Day. Julia, I- I'm going to posit the same question, which I think is the ambiguity of what to do with a nominal rate where it is. And that, folks, the math here is the yield of pick your duration, the 10-year minus a new wicked small inflation, a disinflationary statistic, which gives you a high real yield. Julia, how should the Fed respond to where the nominal, the current 10-year real yield is? Well, I think that the Fed trade off ahead of them. They can um, not be in a rush. At the same time, it's there's no denying now that the inflation trend is definitely outpacing their expectations. And a sequence of cuts to the nominal rate is the right way to balance risks uh, to keep that real yield from tightening. So I think the direction of travel is pretty clear. And what we will look to hear from Jay Powell is some sense of strategy and timing and cadence. Right. And what exactly they're looking at to trigger this process. Are they slaves to the Greenspan measured? which I think everybody knows from listening to me for years. I totally disagree with my good friend, Dr. Greenspan, on. But are they just completely slaves to at all costs be measured? I don't think so. I, I wouldn't. I, I would say it's it's a little bit more nuanced. Uh, they did say that they could move methodically, or that's what Governor Waller signaled. And we'll see if Chair Powell re- repeats that word today. What is methodical? Well, it sort of suggests they won't be moving in, you know, 50 or 75 basis point moves, that they will be moving in 25 basis point increments. But I expect a lot less sort of rigid forward guidance. That doesn't mean 25 basis points every meeting or, you know, every other meeting. It's going to be dependent on the data. It could be faster or slower, but it does seem like they are ruling out chunkier moves in the initial phases of this process. Again, as long as the economy cooperates, if we get, you know, companies laying off workers, uh, certainly that would change the landscape and they could move a lot faster. But I think in the current environment where the labor market looks pretty healthy, a lot cooler, but pretty healthy, uh, growth is fine and inflation is cooling quite rapidly, they the intention seems to be dare I say, move at a measured pace. And Julia, but there's a lot of folks out there, um, a lot of folks that, <clears throat> you know, look at real-time data and say, hey, this Fed, inflation's already down, the economy is slowing, mm-hmm. now is the time. Why yes. wait to see the rearview mirror data confirm what we already know, which is the economy is slowing, inflation is tame. Let's go now. 
Yeah, it's a it's a fine balance. You know, again, you're right. We we look at G, Q4 GDP. It's quite impressive. But again, that's Q4. We're in Q1 and we're looking towards Q2. Uh, what does the future hold? I think we've seen surveys showing some, you know, alarming things on the hiring front. We in our own scraping of earnings reports that we do at MPP, um, we, we're see, hearing the same thing, that there's not a lot of hiring intentions. So we could see a cooling in the labor market in coming months. I don't necessarily think it'll show up on Friday because there's some seasonality issues that could boost the number. But I do think in coming months, we're going to see softer job numbers. And that could lead the Fed to go either at a steadier pace. I do expect them to move in March. I don't see there's a reason holding them back. We expect as long as the January inflation data don't repeat the surge that we saw last January, if it looks more like the last six months, which is very benign, I think that they go ahead in March and get this process started. I think I think that's what we've been hearing in FedSpeak. Yeah. When they say risks are balanced, uh, that means, you know, it, it, it's time to start thinking about the next phase of policy. Hey, Julia, you mentioned kind of the labor market, and obviously we'll get a good read on Friday here. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I took two economics classes at Duke. I feel qualified to comment on this. Um, <laughs> I'm just shocked at how strong the labor market has been and how resilient the labor market's been. What, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's been impressive. Uh, it was the main reason we did not expect a recession last year. The U.S. labor market is so diversified. It's an ocean liner. And we came into last year just firing on all cylinders. And it, it was hard to see a, a sharp yeah. turn down. It's a little bit, I would agree, it is with the Fed. It's more balanced now. Hiring still looks okay, but it's slowed considerably since last year. Unemployment is low, right. but it's it's crept up a little bit. And the base of hiring, the number of companies hiring, the number of sectors hiring has really, really well, narrowed. Steve Ratner. It's just three yeah. sectors driving everything. Steve Ratner uh, was out the other day. He's doing yep. a thing on Morning Joe. He's like saw chart that. guy on Morning Joe. I know, Joe. I saw that. He's got, Steve's got a <laughs> killer chart, killer, killer chart, showing how odd the employment growth was, this explosion out of a yeah. stimulus-led pandemic. Dr. Yeah. Coronado, who benefited in the job market? Was it the haves, the have-nots? Did the middle class lift? Yes, yes. I mean, I think one of the great things we saw from this run it hot experiment was that it did benefit the lower end of the earnings spectrum. And that's something we haven't seen in decades. But the lower income workers, you know, it was Amazon competing with Chipotle for, you know, entry level lower wage workers. And all of a sudden, those workers could get full time jobs with benefits uh, at a decent wage. <clears throat> That yeah. was a it was like a level shift up for the lowest earners. Now, at the top, it's a bit more no, nuanced. Things like work from home allow actually people are not willing. Are, they're willing to take smaller raises for more flexibility. Um, yeah, and so actually like, supervisory workers didn't get yeah. those raises. Julia Coronado, thank you so much for the Fed brief. Flexibility. Uh, Do we have flexibility? We have flexibility. Okay. Waited and waited for this interview. Uh, Robert T. Kaplan, I, I, I've done a number of books with him where they've been my book of the summer. He did a brilliant book on China and, and all their expansion, if you will, off of Marco Polo. His definitive book on the South China Sea is a must read for anyone in the American military. 
to get an understanding of the circuitous nature of the South China Sea and, of course, the way the uh, United States military is expanding in the Philippines is just one example right now. And without question, my book of the year this year was Robert D. Kaplan, The Loom of Time. Yes, it's between empire and anarchy from the Mediterranean to China, baloney. It's a primer from Morocco all over to the stands where you don't know they're on the map. Robert T. Kaplan joins us uh, right now uh, on international relations. Robert T. Kaplan, if you wrote The Loom of Time right now, how would you have to rewrite it after Mr. Netanyahu's actions in Israel? Um, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you, Tom. Um, I would not have to rewrite it at all because Israel and Palestine are really not in the loom of time. And what I did do in the loom of time was I said that ultimately the, the Middle East will change dramatically with a change of regime in Iran that will be driven by internal factors. And that I think the events of October 7th, 2023, um, have be, because of their very ferocity and bestiality and intimacy, have probably changed the Israeli calculation on Iran that sometime in the future we're going to see direct Israeli attacks on Iran, not now because they have their hands full with Gaza. Right. Um, and that and that Iran, you know, that it, as when Iran changes, where right. 85 million Iranians are, are brought into the global economy economy, that's when the Middle East will really shift. James Trevitas was on yesterday, the former Supreme Commander NATO. He was fiery, incendiary about that we need to take actions against Iran. You're one of our experts on what we've gotten right, what we've gotten wrong about the cultural Sunni Shia debate, the idea that Iran has maybe the only legitimate middle class in the pan-Arab world. What is the Robert Kaplan prescription for how we approach uh, Iran after three deaths in Jordan? Well, first of all, keep in mind that we had the United States and especially Israel have been in an undeclared war with Iran for years now. And it, and it really ramped up after October 7th and ramped up another degree or two after the, the, the three deaths at the U.S. military base in northeast, northeastern Jordan. I think the way they have to approach it is, um, it, you know, everyone says let's take out their nuclear facilities or their missile facilities. This is easier said than done. A lot of their nuclear facilities are deep underground. I don't think the Israelis have the equipment, uh, um, you know, the bunker buster bombs to do it. I think that what the Biden administration has to do is increase by degrees it's um, it's retaliation. In other words, not tit for tat. And the reason why tit for tat doesn't work anymore is because the Iranian strategy is they will have their proxies attack Americans and Israelis, and the Americans and Israelis will then attack their proxies without hitting Iran directly. Therefore, Iran suffers no retribution. And because Iran is afraid of a dramatic retribution against them, because that could unhinge the domestic situation in Iran, which has been tense for years now. 
Robert, is there political will in Washington, in the administration, in Congress for such a, a change maybe in posture towards Iran on the part of the U.S.? Well, there might be in Congress. I'm not sure there is in the administration because, you know, this is very unscientific, but this is an election year. And a wide-ranging war in the Middle East may not help the Biden administration or would probably hurt it. So I think that, you know, in our system, the commander-in-chief makes the calls. All the powerful experts can give him this advice and that, but he has to make the judgment call. And I think he's ultimately fixated on getting reelected and doesn't want a wide ranging war with Iran. But, you know, that being off the table, they have to really ramp up the uh, the level and ferocity of the attacks on Iranian proxies from Syria in the north to Yemen in the south. Robert, what do you think the Israelis will do in the coming days, weeks, as it relates to their efforts in Gaza. I mean, the response was uh, stronger probably than maybe a lot of people thought, but it's been certainly consistent with what they've said. They said they are going to wipe out Hamas, and a lot of people question whether that's even possible. What do they do from yeah. here, do you think? All right. Well, the problem the Israelis have is if they have a permanent ceasefire that allows in massive amount, massive amounts of rebuilding and humanitarian aid, the way that Gaza society is structured is that the remnants of Hamas will take that aid uh, and re-strengthen themselves. Uh, you know, humanitarian aid is one thing, but rebuilding aid will be stolen by Hamas, and then the Israelis will not be back to square one, but they'll be back a number of steps. Therefore, I think the Israelis will do everything to keep putting off American pressure, saying nice things to Secretary of State Antony Blinken, but ultimately to keep pressing on and fighting. Yes, there might be a ceasefire for a few weeks to get back maybe 100 hostages, because Netanyahu is under a lot of domestic pressure to get more hostages released. But in the medium term right. and the long term, I think they keep bombing. Uh, uh, you know, you know, though it will shift from these sort of, you know, I wouldn't call it indiscriminate, but these wide ranging attacks on infrastructure in the Gaza Strip and change to intelligence driven, targeted, mm -hmm. um, you know, attacks. We get intelligence that these people are in such and such a building, we bomb it. And they will keep doing that and they will keep methodically going after the tunnels flooding them with seawater, et cetera. You know, the media loves novelty. And there isn't a lot of novelty after you accept that the Israelis are bombing and flooding the tunnels. It right. just takes time. It takes many weeks. So the, Israel, so the media thinks Israel is not making progress, but that's false. Robert Kaplan with us, folks. He will continue with us. Robert T. Kaplan, I can't say enough about his yep. effort over the years. The Loom of Time was my book of the year. I, I just can't say enough about the span from Morocco to the stands. Robert Kaplan, I've got to go back because of the shock of our military at risk to the state of the Pacific. The jewel from years ago, Asia's cauldron, the South China Sea, and the end of a stable Pacific we walked away from the Pacific Rim. Now we're coming back with four military bases sprawled across the Philippines, the debate of Taiwan. Give us an update on how you perceive 
the end of a stable Pacific? All right. First of all, the Chinese love to, you know, to constantly bully and push around the Philippines because the Philippines is a weak state compared to the other the other major states in the Pacific. But it is also a treaty ally, the highest form of ally with the United States. So whenever that China bullies around the Philippines, Beijing is also poking Washington in the eye. I think what we've seen is the creation of this wall of sand where the Chinese have literally dumped sand, created atolls, built military bases in a very, you know, uh, you know, in a very slow moving fashion in salami sliced up fashion. So that gradually over the last decade since I published uh, Asia's Cauldron, the Chinese have essentially taken over the South China Sea without the United right. States being able to do much. It's been, you know, they've done it by a thousand cuts and each one so small that for us to retaliate, we would see to be okay, over-retaliating. Well, I'm going to cut in here because I know Paul wants to jump in. One final question on that. If it's been by a thousand cuts, what are there a thousand cuts as it relates to Taiwan? Um, remember, the, ta the Taiwan is the northern border of the South China Sea. It is the cork in the bottle. Uh, of the South China Sea. So by taking over the South China Sea, uh, China makes tremendous progress in, in enveloping and making an end run around Taiwanese sovereignty. Robert, we've seen um, economic data coming out of China much weaker than maybe people would have expected with the reopening of that economy. How does that change maybe the calculus of President Xi as he thinks about the positioning of China in that part of the world, also vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. Yeah, uh, you know, when you have a big, a big authoritarian state that is economically weaker, but militarily stronger and becoming stronger and stronger, like China, that's a very dangerous situation because it, the regime can always be tempted to kind of distract its population with nationalist posturing, especially if that population isn't producing enough, you know, if that economy is not producing enough jobs, especially for young males, yep. et cetera. So I think like an, an economically fragile China going forward, with even as China is producing more nuclear weapons, more warships, more submarine, more nuclear powered submarines, the most important thing of all. Um, I think it's a very tense situation. The you know the combination of those two factors. Yep, and it, I guess you know from the technology standpoint, it really feels like there's a technology. Cold War between China and the West. What do you think the U.S. posture should be politically, policy-wise, towards China over the next several years? Look, we have to avoid at all costs a major hot war in the Pacific. We've, you know, the 
states around the world have absorbed in very well 25 years of warfare in the Middle East. They've absorbed warfare in Ukraine. They've made adjustments. They've priced it in. But a hot, high-end war in the Pacific right. would be would be like mm. COVID-19. It would be like an extinction-level event for a period right. of time for markets. Right. It would disrupt supply chains in a big way and all of that. So how do you avoid a hot war? Well, you get to what I call a post-Cuban missile crisis situation. It, you know, the Cuban missile crisis, both superpowers stared into the abyss and they were absolutely terrified. And afterwards, you got the hotline established, um, nuclear arms limitation right. talks, uh, nuclear test ban treaty, ultimately detente. That's what we have to get to with right. China well, without having a Cuban missile crisis. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, I'm running out of time. Robert T. Kaplan, as simple as I can make it, do we have a foreign policy now after the tumult of the last X number of years of presidential politics, all that's going on in Washington, whatever anybody's political affiliation, do you see a foreign policy in this nation? I do, but I see it in danger of changing by 180 degrees every four years. We don't have the continuity of a foreign policy the way we used to have. Mm -hmm. Got to leave it there. Robert yep. Kaplan, thank you so much, folks. I'll put it out on LinkedIn and Twitter. It is my book of the year, uh, The Loom of Time. Lisa Mateo with our headlines. Lisa, what do you start with? All right, we're starting with the Wall Street Journal. Paul, this is over to you. It may yep. entice you to go electric. Okay, listen to this. There's a German tech startup, it's called Finn, and it has a six to 18 month subscription service. So it's letting people rent EVs. Ah. So you can kind of test them out, kick the tire, see what you think. It has about 25,000 subscribers. Now, 40% of those went on to buy the EVs after because ah. they like driving it. So they have them mostly in Germany, but they do have about 2,000 subscribers here on the East Coast. So just over, see, Americans are not <laughs> as willing to buy, but just over 7% yep. of its American customers went on to buy the EV. So this is just yeah. another venue. I mean, Hertz tried it. It didn't kind of work out. I know. Them. You but know, Matt Miller, uh, who he got me a one-week test drive of the Ford F-150 oh. Lightning, and it was awesome vehicle and i'm not a pickup truck guy because i'm a wall street so, guy i don't drive okay. pickups but it was awesome but the charging anxiety exactly is there yeah. where where did plus you, it was ninety five four thousand dollars we're gonna stop the show now worldwide because <laughs> this is what i hear from everybody over beverages of my choice so you get the car from miller or the ford yep. Miller, whatever yeah he's a player where did you charge it um i charged it at bloomberg's princeton <laughs> offices you actually princeton? <laughs> no i was down there for i was down there for a meeting i forgot charge it up and boom and at my country club in new jersey they have charging stations uh, there so but otherwise can you, can you charge it at your house no it will take you 24 hours it, it will take charger. 24 hours with my little 120 volt I don't, I, full disclosure and I, I don't i don't even have a driver's license folks that's oh, qualified tom am. does not have a driveway i, don't, I mean you know i'm, I'm you know the, I'm doing hybrid. Like Bentley, it's it's working. What's next? You're killing me. It takes how long to charge it? Well, if you don't have the big charger like 20, thing. 30 minutes? Yeah. Oh, well, if you have the big charger thing, then it's yeah. pretty quick, a number of hours. But you got to drive around and look for it. I don't know. I okay, don't know. next. It's a lot. Okay. We're going to Bloomberg now. A lot of layoff news. So Bloomberg took a look at who is most likely to get fired. Okay. So they interviewed economists, recruiters, consultants, career coaches. Turns out middle managers 
remote workers because middle managers, uh. people trying to streamline, companies trying to streamline remote. Because, you mean work from home? Yes, correct. Remote because you know people, they want more people back in the office, and it's easier to let go of someone remotely than in person. So they didn't mention people with a red and blue bow tie. No, not exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm wearing You're this good. today. Claudia Sam was busting my chops. She tore me to shreds uh, out on social yesterday. I'm wearing okay. a red and blue bow tie for Dr. Sam today. What yeah. do you think? We're Sam will, yeah. I think oh. you mentioned UPS yesterday. I know. Six days a week, they want you in the office. I know. Everybody's got to come in. Okay, quickly, or one more. you got 20 seconds. Go. 20 seconds. All right. Walt Disney parents going crazy. They're taking classes. Uh, about these paid reservation systems, travel agents, YouTubers, influencers. It's all the lengths that parents are going to book Disney vacations. It's just to get goofy for breakfast. Just I mean, to get it, yep. yes. To get, to get what you want to do is spend $200 to get a warmed over pancake <laughs> so princess can see goofy. There you yep. go. And I've, I've actually, folks, You've I've done actually it. done this. Yes. Ken Feli, have you done this with the twins? I mean, have you been in the yeah, breakfast I've done it. goofy? I've, I've the never Bippity, done Disney with the kids. <laughs> Four kids, zero Disney. Are you terrible? Yes. How about that? We're we're only doing this for some merit badge for that. The truth of the matter is, is Lisa Mateo had a Bon Jovi (laughs) poster in her bedroom, and so did Denise. Yes. Denise from the upper, upper, upper West Side had Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. We're all Bon Jovi today for Paul Sweeney. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, bringing you the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.